0: Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome to the third and final conversation of Compassionate Las Vegas, conversations about racism, pathways to systemic change, summer series. Hard to get all those S sounds out there. I want you to know that I am so grateful that you are here. And before we get started, I just want to set the tone by asking you to hold three words in your heart and mind throughout tonight's conversation. You can write them down if it's helpful, but do your best to keep them in mind as you listen to each of our speakers, as you engage in conversation through the chat box, through Q and A. These are the three words I ask that you hold in mind. Identity, experience, and action. Identity speaks to who you consider yourself to be and who you consider others to be in light of yourself. Experience speaks to that which has shaped your worldview, your history, both individual and collective and like identity. Experience impacts your relationship with others and, as I prefer to say, other selves. Action speaks to the melding of identity and experience, it speaks to a future. Action speaks to shaping the identities and experiences to come. Now, some of us are observing these conversations academically or philosophically. We're here to learn and to ponder and to muse. But for others of us, these conversations are about survival, existence, the simple ability to be. Whatever the reason you are here, you are here and that one simple thing is what we have in common. Tonight our conversation is framed in compassion as we design change through the lens of appreciative inquiry. You see, hope takes courage and hope is a moral imperative. So tonight we engage in change through the lens of hope as we draw from the wall of moms in Portland the SEIU Local 107's commitment to be an anti-racist organization. As we draw from the voices of our heroes of the past like Dr. King, or even from the innocence of our children yet to come, we draw from hope. We must believe in what is possible. Remembering that as Marianne Williamson wrote, it's not our inadequacy that frightens us. It's the realization that we are powerful beyond measure. As Dr. King wrote from that Birmingham jail. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So as you and I engage in these conversations, we liberate others by our presence. So I ask that you listen with the goal to learn. Ask your questions, even the tough ones, and take a moment to share this webinar on your social media. Tweet it live if you'd like. Share on Facebook, Instagram, whatever your preferred platform is. But most importantly, let's create pathways to systemic change and let's do it together. So now I'd like to turn it over to Reverend Leonard Jackson, the executive director of the Faith Organizing Alliance.
1: Reverend. Thank you. And it is indeed a pleasure to stand before you. And I will not I'll be very brief for that fact, because we do not have the luxury of, of waiting until something happens to us. We have problems here in this country. And the and the problem that we have this fact that we're living during a, a pandemic or the, the coronavirus in a high mortality rate among people of color and if you throw on top of that the police brutality that tells us that we have work to do When we look at the lives that we lost this recently of the the giants, the civil rights giants, that Congressman John Lewis and the right Reverend uh, C.T. Vivian, these are the shoulders that we stand upon and we cannot stand by and wait for John Lewis stated to us, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to speak up. You have to say something, you have to do something, and when you become an OG like myself, you realize that you may be just a little bit too old to continue to carry that baton. It's difficult when you reach a certain age, so you reach back. You have to reach back It's like running a long race. When you have that baton in your hand and you know you have to make a difference. There's a young man that we bring to you this evening and we know he's standing on the right foot. For when he looked up and he saw someone he felt was more deserving than himself when he was working with any town graduation, any town youth council member, he looked up and realized there was someone there that could do better than him that needed a break. They needed to be uplifted. That's when you knew and we knew that he was the right person for this moment. So we say to you today, Sean, Mabanta, thank you for joining us today. Step up. Speak up. Do something. Make a difference. We're depending upon you. The baton is yours. Run on, my brother. Run
2: on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Reverend. And uh, now I'm going to read the Interfaith Council's statement. Voices of faith in Southern Nevada and beyond rise up to address racial issues. The tensions, divisions, and injustices that currently beset America are symptoms of a long-standing illness. The nation is afflicted with a deep spiritual disorder manifested in rampant materialism, widespread moral decay, and a deeply ingrained racial prejudice. These evils will be eradicated only by a love that is translated into action. Such actions as deliberately going out of your way to befriend all, appreciating the indispensable contributions of all, and joining hands with all in the creation of a new world. We believe in the fundamental goodness and decency of the masses of our fellow citizens. We are confident that Americans yearn as we do for spirituality, that they desire genuine justice and prosperity for everyone. That is from the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. From the Quran, God will not change the conditions of a people unless they change what is in their hearts.
3: From Christian scripture, love the Lord,
2: love your neighbor. To heal and change the conditions of social injustice and planetary degradation, we simply have to do the work of transforming the ego and opening up the heart. In the same vein, the wise have pointed out that our biggest environmental problems are not loss of biodiversity, climate change, or ecosystem collapse. At their roots, the monumental environmental problems are selfishness greed and apathy we align ourselves with those seeking justice for the death of george floyd and countless others and i just can't believe what my eyes have seen may all members of our community with conscience whether you're religious or not stand firm in your active compassion opposition to the virus of systematic systemic racism the virus of homophobia, the virus of xenophobia that discriminates against any member of our common humanity. May we all pledge to stand up, speak up, and march together until all can shout in victory, free at last, free at last. Thank God we are all free at last. I will now give some of my thoughts on the subject as well. We are capable of cascading a domino effect of kindness and compassion on this earth, and it starts with us. I believe kindness and compassion can not only transform the lives of individuals from their deteriorating mindsets, longing for connection, but I believe it can also transcend deep-rooted systemic racism, and transform the hearts of all people to allow us to empathize with each other's sufferings and struggles, to allow us to see that we are all one humankind. We are not crazy to think we can change the world. We are crazy to think. We are crazy if we think we can do it alone. Thank you for listening to the Interfaith Council statement, as well as my own thoughts on the subject.
1: Thank you. And if in fact we are in church i would say let the church
3: say amen amen thank you a second blessing i have today is to introduce a friend
1: when you introduce a friend it is easy it'll be easy for me to say that here's a young lady that that, that moved here to las vegas back in 1993 But we know one thing for sure, when she moved here to Las Vegas, she didn't just pack up just to make a move and sit back and do nothing. She served on the Superintendent Educational Opportunities Advisory Committee. And we know that she also worked as an advisor for the committee in the UNLV. We know that she has done work from her elected position. We don't have to ask what her achievements have been. We can look and understand that she doesn't just talk the talk, she walks the walk. She makes things happen. So we don't have to go too deep and of saying who she is, you stick around a little bit and keep an eye on her. But she just may be one of these days, soon and very soon, someone that we need out there in Washington, D.C. to make a difference for our community because she's there to do the work, which is right. If I had to say stand up, I would say stand up and put your hands together and show just a little bit more love for one that deserves the love that we have and is our representative. Susie Lee. Show us some love.
4: What
5: an introduction. First of all, I love that you call me a young lady. So you're my favorite person now. <laughs> Listen, um, I'm so honored to be here with uh, all of you to, on this town hall on racism. And most importantly, to talk about the path to systemic change. I want to thank uh, Guard Jameson and the Greater Good Council. I, I remember when the Greater Good Council was created years ago, and I just thought this was such an important part of the dialogue and what we need to have in our community and across this country. Uh, we have so many faith communities and we're all in it for the same reason, to make sure that we all have a fair shot at the American dream, that we have equity and that we have compassion and respect and dignity. And uh, so I love that you, one, exist, but also that you're taking on this very, very important topic. uh, One that is obviously forefront of our national discussion uh, today, and it should be until we actually get the systemic change that we're talking about. Um, I just do, I need to address my colleague, uh, Representative John Lewis, civil rights icon, passed away on Friday evening. And um, I think that the thing that makes me, first of all, was a true honor and to be in his presence. Uh, this is a man who embodied, he did not just practice and believe in nonviolence, he embodied it. And, uh, you know, he was literally, uh, you could feel a God in his presence when you were around him. And he will always have an impact on my life. And it is such a true loss for our country. But it was also a gain because he fought from a very young age, the march across the Pettus Bridge in Selma to the 33 years he had in Congress. And I guess I get a little sad because I think about what's happening across this country with People not of all, all types, all ages, all colors, all religions coming together to demand that we take on the problem of systemic racism in this country. And I wish that uh, he would be here to see the results of that. But I know that he is smiling down from heaven uh, because he is looking at, like uh, the Reverend said, the next generation and passing the baton and knowing that we are in uh, good hands in this fight. Um, you know, I, I just wanna talk about um, what's happening in this country with respect to coronavirus and the the disproportionate impact it is having on our our minority communities, our black communities, as well as the horrific death of George Floyd and the confluence of both of those really to me was the perfect storm and us needing to address systemic racism in this country. And police brutality and use of force to me is just the tip of the iceberg of systemic issues that we have to take on in this country. And I'm proud that uh, we took the marching orders from this uh, country and passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act Which requires all law enforcement officers to make mandatory implicit bias, take mandatory implicit bias training, bans police chokeholds and no knock warrants, requires all officers to wear body cameras, and gives localities the tools to address systemic race issues and ensure accountability. Uh, But we know that, that it goes far beyond that. And to me, when I look at systemic racism, I look at the disparities in education and access to healthcare and uh, housing, access to capital for small businesses. And I want you to know that as a member of Congress, I've taken on this duty to do my part to help address this in our community. And so I'll be joining my colleagues in the Nevada delegation and the Boyd School of Law to to chart a path on what we need to do and strategies we need to employ as members of Congress, because it's not just around, uh, it's not just about uh, law enforcement. We need to look at the institutions, the votes we take, the money we appropriate in Washington and look at that through an eye of equity. And so I'm very excited that uh, we will be kicking off a series with that. We'll be looking at legislation, uh, whether it's the Every Student Succeeds, the Higher Education Act, workforce investment opportunity, but more importantly, anything we vote on to improve it from a racial justice point of view. So I invite everyone who is on this call to join in this effort. We'll be filling you in as we get the details of this effort squared away in the next couple of weeks and we uh, this is to me we are at a moment of truth telling in our country but once you tell the truth then you have to make take a moment of self reflection on what it is that you have done that may have not been right and how you can change that but more importantly what are you going to do to chart a path to change in the future and that's really what this uh panel will be all about so i invite all of you to be part of that so i'm looking forward to listening to uh you this evening i'm gonna turn my video off but i will be here listening um but i know that uh to me change begins from within and this is racism in our country is a stain on our country and it is one that each one of us that begins, not just at a federal level or a state level, but at our community level and our family level. So I look forward to partnering with all of you. Thank you for the greater good council for bringing this important conversation together. And thank you all for having me.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much. We are so honored that you joined us and that you are going to participate in the the discussion tonight. Um, Your words are meaningful, and uh, I think that you've really identified exactly the heart of our goal tonight. And thank you so much for the work that you've done and the acknowledgement of our heroes from the past as well. We do hope to carry their legacy on. And Sean, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. really, really enjoyed hearing you and hearing your heart Uh, the future is definitely bright with people like you in it so thank you for that now, i just like to set our format here. We're going to follow the same format we've done the past few weeks. Each of our panelists will have a five-minute introduction to share their heart, their vision for Las Vegas, and their thoughts on this topic. After they've all shared, we will then open the floor up for a few questions. We've got a few in the bag here that we're going to start with. But please use the Q&A box and uh, make sure that you are engaging in the conversation that way, as well as through the chat function. As always, this is a compassionate conversation. So remember that even though we're just faces on a screen right now, we are human to human. So try to maintain that spirit as we do embark upon this, what could be a a difficult conversation, but we'll make sure that it may be difficult, but it's good. We'll make sure of that. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our first poll of the night, and it's a really simple one. I just want to know, is this your first time joining us? Is this your second time? Is this your third time? So uh, let's
3: go ahead and have that poll. And you can just type that right in the chat box. All right. Perfect. Well, it's an easy question. So you should know whether it's your first, second,
0: or third time. So it should be an easy answer. Let's get that result going. And while we do, I'd like to introduce our first panelist, none other than Jamila Lewis. She is a community organizer and works with Black Lives Matter NAACP, the Mass Liberation Project, and a plethora of other organizations. Being a local Nevadan, she attended the University of Nevada, Las Vegas where she began her advocacy with UNL volunteers. UNLV, NAACP, SODA, UNLV, Black Lives Matter, and working at the Center for Social Justice. While working within all these organizations, she has gained many connections and opportunities, such as interning on Capitol Hill for Dina Titus, joining advocates for youth, lobbying with Population Connection for Reproductive Rights, participating in the Advocacy Corps with Friends Committee on National Legislation, and having a fellowship with young people for. Following her work within the community, she now serves as the PREA Coordinator Advocate and the local Rape Crisis Center, being there to support incarcerated individuals who have experienced sexual violence. Throughout a variety of experiences Jamila comes from a unique stance to speak about advocacy in the community and how we can all work together towards the future. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say Jamila.
4: Well, thank you so much, Will. And hey, everyone. I don't think I have any much more to say. You said it all, right? Um, But I want to thank you all for inviting me out here today. Um, I also want to thank all the representatives and the panelists, as well as all the participants who are tuning in today. um, Because I think advocacy is really important. And how we participate in civic engagement varies um, from community to community, from culture to culture and from school to school. So um, a little bit about myself and the work that I've done um, and how I got into my unique um, position, as Will so much said, Um, I'm from Reno, Nevada. So yes, let's go Nevadans. There's not many of us out there. Um, But while in Reno, Nevada, I used to go to the Boys and Girls Club and every summer we'd have um, a, service a service learning engagement where we'd go pick up and clean it in the parks and then we'd also do christmas in july Uh
3: oh looks like we're
0: having a few audio issues here uh we'll come back to jamila when uh, her audio connects that that pesky technology it's always something jamila are you back uh, can you hear me there you go
4: yeah. <laughs> uh, okay if I pause I'm so sorry let me make this fast um so yeah I've been doing a lot of community advocacy since I was younger I moved to UN or to Las Vegas to go to UNLV where I obtained my bachelor's in criminal justice minoring in afro-american studies um and I just Go straight head in into the advocacy world with Black Lives Matter, UNL Volunteers, um, and all the other organizations that Will listed. Um, I really started my advocacy at UNLV. It was actually with a Green Dot training hosted by Carmella. Um, and it was really cool because I was learning about bystander intervention and how to be a better community member. And um, years later, I didn't think that my world would come full circle on how I can engage in the community and how we all can engage in the community. So um, I definitely kept up my advocacy. I started organizing with Black Lives Matter. Um, We had a few (laughs) public comments we made. We've done protesting. We brought um, at least 12 people to meet Angela Davis and lobbying on Capitol Hill a plethora of times. Um, And so I've been doing advocacy for quite some time, including with Mass Liberation, Laura and Leslie with Plan. Um, And so throughout my experiences, I decided to continue my advocacy and attend a protest on May 29th um, in honor of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the other folks who had lost their lives due to police violence and overall systematic violence, right? So um, I attended that protest with, six hundred dollars in my backpack um, and ready to bail people out and during that protest um, that's when i was actually arrested and from there um, my advocacy changed how i wanted to show up in my community changed um, because i realized a lot of my community was hurt and not only from being arrested but from the things that they were seeing and dealing with in their lives So um, from there, I decided to host an event called The Blackout, which was really a cultural explosion of the people's protest experience. So I collected over 100 signs from different protesters and different protests going on in the community. Um, Nevada Partners um, lent me a space, and they allowed me to host this exhibit there where we had about four sessions of 25 people, because of social distancing, um, go into an art exhibit Um, and then be able to go in and listen to local performers, um, spoken word um, artists, poets, and also watch a video compilation to see how the people experience the protest. And from there, um, my advocacy has not stopped. Um, I've been in the community regularly, um, as well as in my job as a PREA coordinator with the Rape Crisis Center, really fighting to end um, systematic violence And that encompasses police violence, as well as um, violence that people are experiencing while incarcerated in their homes, because if we're able to attend to the problem, then people would um, experience less violence. So that's just a little bit about me. And again, I wanna thank you all so much for inviting me to this panel, um, because how we engage in our communities, how we show up, and even talking to our legislators here on this panel means something and everything we say will impact someone else so thank you so much um i'm gonna stop taking up some, so much space
0: <laughs> no you are welcome we appreciate you being here and you uh deserve to take up space always remember that so our next panelist is mujahid ramadan he's the founder and ceo of mr consulting Inc., with more than two decades of experience in the field of consulting, social services, and administration. Mujahid designs and provides learning experiences, training, organizational development, consultation and coaching in the areas of diversity and multicultural issues for individuals, groups, corporate, and government clients throughout Nevada and the U.S. He serves as an executive board member for the National Conference for Community and Justice, (NCCJ). He is a member of the Interfaith Council for Workers' Justice and serves on the Task Force for Faith Leaders Initiative Renouncing Racism. He is also a member of the Interfaith Council. He is a, just a, a true citizen that shines a light in this world, and he chairs the LV Metropolitan Police Department Multicultural Advisory Committee. He was born in Lake
3: Providence, Louisiana, but he is here with us now. So, Mujahid Ramadan, please take it away. And I'll go ahead and have you unmute for us, please. You're still muted there. Oh, it. There we go. I heard something there.
4: Uh, Mr. Ramadan, on the bottom left side of your screen, there is a button that says mute um with a little um speaker. If you could just hit that for us, sir. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Good
5: now? There we
6: go. Perfect.
0: We're
4: good. Oh, Thank you, sir. Hey. Okay.
6: good, good. Thank you. And um not to reiterate, but Will actually was a guest on uh, Police Promoting Unity yesterday. Uh, he was one of our he was our guest and was very excellent in terms of representing what our panel and what our discussions have been about and about this panel tonight. And uh, so I really like to thank and all of my co-panelists and in particular our good friend and Congresswoman Susie Lee. As you all know, being a member also of the local Muslim community, we are now in the season of Hajj. So normally, people from the U.S. and around the world would be going to Mecca in Saudi Arabia to celebrate the Hajj there. Uh, we call it the biggest uh, family reunion in the world. Generally, they're all over a million muslims who make that tour every year who make the track every year and we are affected in our faith traditions as many others are and and, and reducing that capabilities of the people traveling and, and things of that nature but yet and still we, we continue to work towards meeting the, the goal of what hajj is really about which is transitioning in your life and sounds like that's a great deal of what we're talking about in this country here today We're also in the season of fasting, that we've had the month of Ramadan fast, but during the season of Hajj, you can fast anywhere from one day up until nine or 10 days, which represents the first 10 days of the month of Hajj. Uh, I'm only fasting a certain portion of them, but I remember, it reminds me of my interaction with Congressman John Lewis and a good friend of mine and a member of the uh, Interfaith Council, Alita Nelson, sent me a text message or email and she talked about the night when the, the the congressman and i were going around las vegas we were taking him back to the airport but he came he, he asked me to take him by a uh, discussion that we were having our interfa- our interfaith forums and he took a moment to speak about uh edmund pettus bridge of uh, bloody sunday and the experiences he had had and dr king as a mentor and it at the time i was on staff to u.s senator harry reid and over the years that had i know i chauffeured and taken, escorted Congressman Lewis various places, God rest his soul in peace, and on behalf of U.S. Senator Harry Reid. And so a leader really reminded me of it and what a great experience it was that he closed out our interfaith forum that night and talked about his experience of social justice in America. Again, thank all of us in the Interfaith Council for being up, helping being helped support this idea. On the ninth day of Hajj, it's called Yom Arafat. Arafat means to know. It's the day of knowing. And there's a verse in the Quran that God says, I created you from, from one single male and female and made you into nations, tribes, and families, so that you may know one another. And the word know is called Lat that you may know one another. So God said, I created you differently so that you be able to know and recognize each other. And then God closes that verse by saying, And surely the best among you are the ones who are most God conscious. So here, God takes any level, what we would call superiority or moral, moral righteousness, and he moves it from one of what we would see individually as our ethnicity or our race or our gender. And God says, your, your, your morality and your, your righteousness, that is what makes you excellent. It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about your religion. It's not about your sexual orientation. It's not about any of those things. It's not about those superficial things. It's really about the quality of really your heart, and actually both will. And Sean spoke of the heart, and from a Quranic verse, God says, "And never will I change the conditions of a people until they change what is in their heart." that kalb is called kalb, but that verse, actually, I believe the the word that is actually used there is not kalb; it's actually fuad or instiada. It's one of those words. So kalb means the physical heart. But then God is telling us there's two other aspects of the heart, and those are the ones that God say needs to change. And I think America as itself is in that transition now. We're in that mode. COVID-19 has been an indicator, the death of George Floyd, and the subsequent demonstrations and protests that have been justifiable. And I'm encouraged by our young people who come together in this capacity. The ninth day of Hajj, Yom Arafat, we actually come together as a Muslim community there in Saudi Arabia to recognize our unity as a population of people. Along with that, as you all can see, my office space in my home here is kind of in disarray. My wife is moving us to a new residence, and as a good husband, I'm just following her lead and accepting that we're going to move into a new house, so it, it leaves everything in clutters. As you can see, there's boxes all around in this room, but we're going to make it through that. Um, so. We talked yesterday on the talk show and we had a, quite a few people called in and complimented Will's passions and expressions to represent what we were trying to do as the interfaith forum and where we need to go as a community. But what I'd like to really talk to you also about a moment is uh, we shared yesterday, we had one of our multicultural advisory council meetings that we meet with the sheriff and or with the executive staff once a month. Uh, We haven't been able to meet, we had not been able to meet directly uh, for three or four months until yesterday, we actually met at the headquarters to look at the ideas and concepts of what has transpired during the demonstrations and and during the, uh, uh, the protests. And there's going to be a lot of discussion that's going to be going on in future advisory council meetings. Where the sheriff will share with us the dynamics of what occurred from the department's perspective, and we, of course, will share with him what we see from the community perspective. That discussion will probably go on for the remainder of the year. But I think it will also include ideas and concepts that we're going to draw from this event, from this one today, and the first three forms, the first two forms that allow for us to look at conc- concisely what are some of the dynamics that we're faced with in terms of this transition. Um, All truths, one scholar noted, passes through three stages in its transition. First is ridicule, then is violently opposed, and then is accepted as self-evident. I think the fact that we are suffering from systemic racism in the United States, we are now at the third stage, is very evident that African American people and people of color around this country suffer disproportionately, economically, educationally, Healthcare wise and, 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 and all systems. So, as Congressman Lee made note, that the law enforcement or public safety is the point of the spear. But if we were to remove the point of the spear, we will still have this huge system of systemic racism that continues. And uh, so, we have to address really the entire system. It's not just a one piece or one prong thing. We're going to have to address a number of issues, including those that are around economics, employment, including those around healthcare including those around the criminal justice system and the disproportionate incarceration of, of, of not only African-American but other people of color. Those are all things that are going to have to be considered. And it will take all of us in order to invest our time and energy. So yesterday we spent time going over what LVMPD provided for us. And it was it's actually, it is the, uh, a five-year evaluation on the use of force and vehicle pursuits, the annual five-year statistical report. And uh, this was spearheaded by uh, Captain uh, Nicole Splinter, and she shared the ideas of the information. I believe we Will actually had the opportunity to go online, and I suggest many of you go online to LVMTD. Uh, protectthecity.com and look at this evaluation because it will give us a bird's eye view of what the department has been doing in terms of combating the issues that we're all concerned about in terms of not only systemic racism, but what happens with use of force, what happens with officer involved shootings, all of those things are looked at in this system of constitutional policing.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was uh, the sphere. I think that you hit the nail on the head with that, the sphere. And we're going to get more into that in the conversation in just a bit. I'd like to introduce our next panelist, William McCurdy II. He is the Nevada State Democratic Party's first African-American chair and the youngest chair in modern party history at 28 years old. I will give a disclaimer. He has fit us into his very busy schedule and has some legislating to do. So we're going to give him a few minutes to share with us, and then he will leave uh, when he has to. But we wanted to make sure he still was included in this panel, and it was very important to him to do this. So I do want to mention the first bill that he presented as a new assemblyman was to raise the minimum living wage to $15 an hour. So that ties right into what you were talking about, with that economic piece. So without further ado,
1: would you take it away, assemblyman?
7: Um, can you hear me? Yes you're coming through great. Thank you so much well good evening everyone and uh, for those of you who are joining us from outside of Las Vegas Nevada uh, thank you for being with us here this evening and I'm just honored and extremely grateful to have an opportunity to share my thoughts uh, about how we uh, navigate this this very difficult pathway to uh, systematic change or systemic change if you will and the conversation of racism and, and and how do we get to a place to where it is more equitable for uh black people in america as well as other uh people of color in this country um myself i am from las vegas Nevada. i've been here my entire life um just a little you know brief uh background about me i was uh went to high school dropout i grew up in the historic west side uh, which is a predominantly majority uh you know uh majority area where it's a lot of people of color, mainly black and brown people. And um, I was a high school dropout at one point in my life, a teenage father at the age of 16 years old. And I didn't go back and get my high school diploma until I was actually 24 years old. And it was then where I actually got the confidence to, you know, to, to continue to move forward into my life and identify ways and tap into my potential, if you will. And... Started to begin to explore uh, the 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 role of leadership and, and what it takes to actually make change happen and make it a possibility, uh, but I. Ultimately, went back and got my high school diploma at 24 years old, enrolled at the College of Southern Nevada, uh, graduated at CSN uh, in 2015 with honors as the president of over 40,000 students, uh, decided that I will work as an organizer with the Service Employees International Union, uh, Local 1107, uh, which represents public and private sector employees here in the state of Nevada and actually 2.4 million members across the country. And it was there where I began to hone in on my leadership Abilities and I decided to take the bold step of going to represent the people that I grew up around uh, In the Nevada State Legislature where I was elected at 27 years old and um, and still actually occupying that seat today and as Will spoke uh, to the uh, Additional title that I hold as a chairman of the Democratic Party. It is important for me to to be here, not only as uh, Someone who occupies all these titles, but someone who is a leader in, in the black community and also being a black man myself. It is important to offer my voice and, and also uh, the compassion that I have uh, for the work that needs to be done. Because truly, uh, we know that there are, you know, uh, if we're speaking about the justice system, we know that there are two forms of justice uh, in America. We know that there is and has been a lot of uh, economic disparities, uh, whether you're talking about here in, in, in Nevada or Las Vegas, particularly, or any other black community or majority minority community across the country wherever we go they all look the same so there's a great intersectionality between uh economic justice uh you know we're talking about social justice as well as a criminal justice reform that needs to take place and at the state level uh i sit on the government affairs committee and we hear a lot of uh, different bills you know as, as it relates to areas where we can actually impact, um, you know, and legislate uh, more equity and, and, and inequality within the justice system uh, that is more reflective of, of the people that we serve. So uh, I know that there'll be questions later, uh, but I just wanted to give a little bit of background and, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to this very compassionate conversation about how we address racism uh, here in the state of Nevada and, and also in, in the larger narrative around the country. And I believe that we all have a part to play and it is only through operating with love that we will get to a place where we can all uh, live a life of, of peace and prosperity. And, and that starts with uh, the nucleus of it all being compassion and love. So thank you for having me Will.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. We definitely honor uh, the office that you do hold and the work that you do. And just, I I know we're running a little bit behind schedule, but I have to tell this story. The very first time that I met you was in Reno and you and the late uh, Tyrone Thompson were dealing with some stuff and uh, we prayed together and I just was really Um, moved by your passion and commitment to to not only our city, but our our state and the world as as a whole. So thank you for the work that you do. And to all the panelists, thank you for those introductions. We've got some good stuff to get through tonight. Uh, We have a ton of questions. I just want to let everyone know, please continue to ask your questions. We are going to compile them. And I have a big announcement. I'm going to drop it now. We have a podcast recording scheduled with some of our previous panelists to address the unanswered answered questions. So if you didn't get your question answered live, we are going to answer it through the podcast series. So that's the Compassionate Las Vegas podcast. The link is right on our website at CompassionLV.org. I also want to thank all of our community partners who have made this possible, who have shared in this endeavor, and who take this so seriously. Uh, Some of them, you know, I just was really surprised. I'm like, this matters to you? And they're like, yes, this matters to us. So it's important to to honor them. So I want to say thank you to the Faith Organizing Alliance, uh, ADL. HRC, Moonrich Group, Dr. Gard Jameson, and the Jameson Foundation. And I'm sure I'm leaving some off, but they are all on the flyer. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, With that, I want to get this question just to start us off. And Assemblyman, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. What are some specific things we can do to move towards systemic change?
3: Maybe three things for us.
7: You can hear me now. Uh, well, the first thing uh, that I believe we all can do is recognize the uh, the privileges that we hold uh, and, and recognize how we can operate with understanding the privilege and utilizing our knowledge to help others to understand where they may be wrong. And it starts with everyday conversations. And, and, and myself, more recently, actually, I've been talking to a lot of my friends who who actually are, are, are white and they're asking me like, Hey, Will, I don't, some say like, I don't really understand, especially like, uh, like we're, we're saying black lives matter. And we, we are noticing this movement uh, and have been a movement for a very long time, actually, uh, quite some time. And they just didn't understand why they just couldn't say all lives matter. And I'm like, well, black lives matter exists because we don't, feel as though our lives matter. So it starts with recognizing uh, your place in society. And after you recognize your place in society, you can start having, first educating yourself, then having conversations with those who may not agree and helping them find the light, so to speak. So identify who you are, your identity, your privilege. Number two, start having, educate yourself, Number three, start having conversations. Take up space wherever you may be, whether it's taking up space online, uh, over social media, taking up space uh, during, you know, within your work settings, whether that be, well, many of us are socially distanced right now working from home, but take that time to educate others who may not understand why they need to the change and why their voice is important in this movement. And I personally feel that this movement is particularly different from any other movement in, in history because it's multi-generational, it's multi-racial, and everyone understands and are operating through the lens of compassion, saying that it is not right that people are being uh, treated unjustly and are not receiving justice just because of color of their skin. So those three things, you know, identifying who you are, educating yourself and taking up space in whatever area that you are in, will help us move the needle because in order to create change you must first become educated because a lot of people are you know uh saying things and 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 mimicking uh statements without actually understanding the root of where it comes from whether we're talking about policing or we're talking about the economic institutions or we're talking about the social changes that need to take place or we're talking about how systematic racism has oppressed uh many people in, in in america so I'll stop there, but it takes educating yourself and realizing who you are and then having those tough conversations to actually start to move the needle in terms of a more just society.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. I think that those three points are are exactly it. And they tie in so well with everything we've already said tonight. I'd like to ask the question this way. I want to take a both and or third way approach to systemic change. A lot of times we see very uh polarizing perspectives and those are given voice of course the squeaky wheel gets the noise and with the media they're after rating so of course they give attention to that which demands the attention but is there a happy medium is there a middle path is there a third way that we can take that really everyone can get on board with and i'd like to throw this out to jamila first if we could
4: Sorry. I'm, I'm a millennial and all, but I'm not good with technology. So I apologize for my lag to everyone. Um, so I think like a, Third way to really get involved and make that change, and I think that um, Mr. McCurdy what did a great example of saying we should acknowledge our privilege and we should learn from that, and we should also go educate other folks and take up that space and that platform. Right? Um, I think that is a great way to start, um, especially if you're new to this conversation, right? But for people who are living in this environment and in this climate right now, especially a lot of us people who are 25 and younger, um, who's really getting into the movement, a lot of us um, have been able to grow up in a society and in a time where we're able to express ourselves and form identities for ourselves that other generations haven't. So I think that it's a little bit different for us when it comes to finding our identities, because a lot of us have already claimed our identities. Right? So from there, it's really about um, not only acknowledging the privilege that we have, but also doing more with it, right? So, for example, um, I'm privileged because I live in the United States and I'm an able bodied person. Every day um, I go to work, I see people outside my job experiencing houselessness. I will go and get them any snack that I can possibly find in my office, specifically. And as as well as PPE, because um, we're in a time where coronavirus is spreading. So we want to make sure that those folks are taken care of as well. So specifically, we use our privilege in little instances. It doesn't have to be only in the terms of social media or panels or lobbying or doing some political education. But it's the simple things of giving back to our community on a regular basis, um, which is a lot of the activism that we're seeing um, locally, even with Food Not Bombs, or um, I think it was Las Vegas Liberation, a group that's now starting to, where they're just gathering people and starting to do the work where we see there is a shortage in our communities. So those are, that's the kind of work that I like to see. And I think that's the future way to thinking about how we could do more in civic engagement. It doesn't always have to be in this macro level Um, But it can be the simple things that we do for each other. So, Let
0: they, me just say, that's fantastic. I, I love everything you just said. And you, you keep teaching me these new words. So for those that don't know, we, we met uh, for the first time earlier this week just to, to get acquainted because we've invited several organizers to the panels. And Jamila was the one that was brave enough to enter the conversation. But she keeps teaching me these new words. We came across artivism. And today she just mentioned houselessness. I don't know if you heard that, but houselessness instead of homeless. So I'm going to ask you to talk about that that again a little later. But um, Assemblyman, would you share a little bit of your thoughts on how policy comes into play here?
7: Sure. Um, now, a lot of people typically, they, they go, they cast their vote, neither primary or general or both. And after they cast their vote, they leave their representative that they supported. Uh, essentially to the wolves. And this is the wrong behavior to uh, to exhibit with, with, within the process of, of, of civic participation and also uh, uh, civic accountability of your elected officials. So uh, I know many of you are voters, uh, we got election coming up November 3rd, make sure you vote and then hold your representative accountable. Uh, but speaking directly to the, the, the policy areas that can be changed uh, uh, from the state level, uh, right now the the national conversation national um, you know sentiment is towards more accountability and transparency within our police departments and uh, right now, I know that folks want to see more transparency so if you would like to see more transparency, you would like to see more accountability, specifically, let's just, for example, we could speak to, you know, body worn cameras. Uh, The the question that most people ask is, why would there ever be a reason for an officer to turn off their body cameras if this was supposed to be a a method to creating more transparency so the public can see what's going on? Um, We can actually fix that within the legislation at the state level, so uh, if, you are interested in, you know, uh, supporting that type of policy to have more accountability, to have more transparency, we can definitely uh, tighten up the language to make sure that anyone that turns off their body camera will be held accountable for turning off their body camera, especially if there is an officer involved, incident, shooting, murder, whatever the case may be. That is one example. Uh, another uh, idea that, you know, folks are looking into is whether or not uh, there is a database statewide that is able to track when there is an officer or officer misconduct that is had, how can the, the multiple agencies communicate with one another to make sure that this officer that, say, did something in uh, Elko, Nevada, does not come down here to Clark County or does not go up to Washoe, Nevada, and actually continue with the same behavior without uh, the, the folks in HR actually knowing what is going on. So that is something that can actually be fixed legislatively, legislatively, as well as the use of force policies. But it's not just about policing. Uh, it's also about uh, other areas to where we actually see systematic racism, where it be towards uh, folks who have uh, done their time and they have paid their debt to society and they are trying to re-enter the workforce so that they can move on with their life or they're trying to get uh, um, uh, Housing in an area, but they are still discriminated against because once you go and you fill out your application and it asks you, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Back in the day, it used to say within the last 10 years, have you been convicted of a felony uh, within the last 10 years? Now it just says, now it just says on some, on some of those applications, have you ever been convicted of a felony, which uh, doesn't have a time limit on it. So when someone is trying to move on with their life and they're trying to get housing and they may have a job and they've been fortunate enough to get a job, now when it comes time for them to look at housing, they can't even get a house because that property may not be favorable of uh, folks with uh, felonies on their record. One way we can fix that is by banning the box, also to include on uh, multifamily homes and, and and for renters etc. So that is also a a form of systematic racism, systematic oppression. So all of these examples are ways in our areas that we need to go and adjust because if we are saying that you know if you commit a crime and and you do your time and you pay your debt to society that you should be given a second chance it should be just that it should be a second chance you should be able to move on with your life and you should have an ability to live wherever you would like to live long as you can demonstrate the ability to uh you know be responsible for the payments that uh that that, that that are that are awaiting so those are just a few areas of policy. And uh, I can tell you that a lot of these areas will be explored. Um, I won't be there the next legislative session, but they're very much so maybe uh, a special session, a second special session that may be happening. So definitely uh, stay tuned, uh, you know, make sure you follow our governor, Steve Sisolak, and uh, make sure your voice is heard within this legislative process if it comes soon.
0: So if you didn't hear what he said, he said, vote and hold people accountable. So Mujahid, I wanna bring you into the conversation here, but before I do, how do we hold our representatives accountable? We hear that term a lot, hold them accountable, but how do we actually do that? And that's for the assemblyman.
7: All right, I'm I'm unmuted. You're good. Okay, what was the question I Will? How do we hold them accountable? You mentioned holding your elect, you vote, vote folks in, but
0: then hold them accountable. How do we actually hold our elected representatives accountable apart from voting them out?
7: So, aside from uh, voting them out, you can actually call them out. Uh, you can call them out uh, publicly, you can call them out over social media. Um, one example that I can give is that when I was in college, we, uh, I was a president of the college back then. And one thing that I knew we were advocating for a piece of policy, it was back then, it was in 2015, it was called the Silver State Opportunity Grant. And what this bill uh, did was it allowed anyone who went to a state college or community college who uh, took a full, full load, which was, you know, 15 credits, uh, it would allow them to get $2,500 per semester. What we did was we paired all of our students up with their legislators, and we made sure that they were registered to vote. So number one, you have to make sure that you are a registered voter, because that is the ultimate equalizer in terms of accountability to any elected representative. Next thing you should be doing is you should be making sure that you're reaching out to them, emailing them, letting them know where you stand on issues. How many, I wonder how many folks actually know who their representatives, are in, in in their you know respective areas you have to know who's in charge of representing you who are the judges in charge of representing you who are 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 your dish who's the who's the district attorney we haven't even spoke to the district attorney office so that's a whole nother area and a whole nother topic that we should actually speak to which is very very important in in, in the conversation around reform and around more transparency and accountability and etc but Make sure you're a registered voter, make sure you're communicating with your, with, with your representative, make sure they know who you are, because at the end of the day, I work for the people. I don't work for William McCurdy II. I am only a vessel, and I am only someone who is supposed to bring forward the policy that is going to better the life of the folks that I've been elected to represent. So at the end of the day, when a constituent reaches out to me and they, they, they ask me for help or they reach out to me and tell me like, hey, I want you to support this policy. Yes, I have a responsibility to do the research on what they're asking me to support. But number two, they are actually telling me what they're interested in. So make sure that your representative know who you are, know what you're interested in and know where you stand, because at the end of the day, we are responsive to you. We should be working for you. It's not the other way around. We got to stop treating politicians like they're up here and we're down here. No, we're equal and they just have been elected to represent us. So that's all I have to say on that. No, you said you said a lot, and thank you for that. I think it's so important to hear
0: that we are in this together. Collaboration is absolutely key, and we are equal. All of us have a voice and should be using it. So, Mujahid, with your experience, both locally and serving on the national forefront, can you help us link this, put this together for us? How do we hold uh, representatives accountable? How do we get the organizations to work together, and how do we get the police force to see, um, kind of, we'll, we'll I'm going air close here so you can see them, our
6: side of things. Good, good question. I'd like to thank the Assemblyman for his observations. One, Assemblyman and to our other panelists, uh, the matter of the body-worn cameras, uh, we probably at the end of last year looked at body-worn cameras being turned off because there was a situation where body-worn, some of the body-worn cameras were turned off. The Advisory Council went back in and looked at the use of force policy looked at uh how we manage people when they're in how the officers men and women manage uh citizens when they're in their custody in case it could lead to an in custody death. so how they manage that but one of the things how they manage is they have to leave all the cameras on so if anyone turns those cameras off that captain and then internal affairs is going to be taking a look at those who turn those cameras off i'm not saying don't go for further legislation but i am saying is that. The advisory council tends to hold the sheriff and the administration's feet to the fire around issues like this. We did have an in-custody debt. There was a couple of cameras that was turned off. We were able to extract all of the information. There seemed to have been no wrongdoing. We haven't heard the conclusions on that, but at any way, that's something that is being looked at. How do we develop this idea that we're sharing here? I think this type of conversation will and to our other panelists. I think also, and Nikki, thank you so very much for reaching out to me to try to help me, get me out of cyberspace because we were finally able to do it. But I think people like yourself, Will, like uh, young McCurdy, like Nikki, uh, like the young lady who was on the show yesterday, this is gonna be your generation's uh, ball to carry, so, so to speak, across the goal line. It's gonna be your basket to score. But we can only lay out to you and share with you what we've experienced. But one thing, having these type of dialogues is so important for us in order to, for that social change. I believe that I would hope that eventually an administration will be in the White House that will invite the country to engage in uh, discussions around systemic racism and around social change. I think I was on a task force with President Bill Clinton investigating and researching uh, racism in religion. And I think that that was a good step forward, but we are now going to need for the entire country to engage in the discussion around systemic racism, around white privilege, around systemic oppression, around the healthcare issues and the financial issues and the criminal justice issues, law enforcement, public safety issues. I think one thing is to become more informed about not only LVMPD, but all of your agencies but find out who is in you, who's the captain in your area command. So knowing who the people are, who are responsible for public safety in your community is a good avenue to and begin to engage, but also feel free to reach out to the sheriff's office and ask for an invitation, or we will invite you if you reach out to me. We'll invite people on occasions to the advisory council meetings when the subject matter allows for us to do so, or if people, sometimes community citizens, have concerns. So, those are all the things that are going to be a part of it. We have to first, as community uh, people of people, citizens of this community, Southern Nevada, Clark County, of the state of Nevada, to encourage and invite our fellow citizens to look at the point of view of what we've been experiencing. And I think I want all of you to make sure you get a copy of this book for your white friends. It's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibarra Kendi. And I think he, Abram does a good job in explaining that. And I think books like um, uh, White Fragility. And books like that, also books like, uh, there's an interesting book, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. That's more about African-Americans than our experience. So there are numerous authors that we want to read and we want to research, but we want to engage in discussion. We want to laugh the out of food. We want to get to know one another. We want to hear each other's stories. We want to know what the experiences are. In South Africa, they had the Reconciliation Committee. In Rwanda, they had a discussion around compassion and social justice. In Germany, after World War II, the the, the, the German populations and the Jew populations sit down together, talked about the experience of the Holocaust. So I think this is something that we're going to have to engage in here. I think it's, a, it's an effort that you all will have to carry out. And I'm proud of you all for stepping up and taking this initiative and we look Forward to your leadership. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. You gave us a lot there. Really, really appreciate that. You shared a story with me not long ago. And we won't go into the details for sake of time. But the point of the story was, when you're born into a system, sometimes you simply don't recognize your privilege. You don't recognize the funk that you're in. You don't recognize these things, and so it becomes an invisible barrier between different levels of governance of community members, um, just between people as as friends and and uh, community
6: members. Well, I'd well, like go ahead. If I may, yes. I think one great scientist said, you don't know what you don't know. And and what Will was relating to is I had the occasion once of staying in a homeless shelter overnight with U.S. Senator Harry Reid. And the smell in a homeless shelter was just extremely repulsive. I actually finally fell asleep. And when I woke up, the, the smell had, I thought, initially had disappeared. But I asked myself the question, did it disappear? And I finally realized, no, I just had gotten used to it. So if I hadn't been born into the institution there, I wouldn't have known the smell was there. It would have been normal to me. And I think that's the way it deals with systemic racism. Most people born into it, whether it oppresses you, you know, we know about it because it's a nightmare. But when, when, when systemic racism and, and this white privilege allows for you to live comfortably and not know what your other citizens are experiencing, then under that condition, you will never know because it's not your experience. For years, people said things like, what happened to our brother George Floyd? It didn't happen. But now cameras are now telling us a lot of things are happening, or, or the young lady who was killed in Kentucky, or the young man who was killed in, uh, in Georgia. All of these individuals who have lost their lives, I think now this is saying to people, this is real, and I think we need to capture this moment to advance this continued conversation around systemic racism, social injustice, and, and, and indifference and, and bias, bigotry and prejudice. Thank you, Will. No, thank you.
0: I think that's important to highlight. And thank you for sharing. I wasn't going to share the story on your behalf. So I appreciate you bringing that in. Uh, But the reason I bring that up is since we have this cross-generational panel, I want to make sure we have a conversation that talks about how we build trust and foster relationships in, in situations where we may feel different or feel a lack of understanding. So, Jamila, you've shared with us about defunding the police and what that means. What would the assemblyman need to do to to hear you? And this is for you as well, sir. What does she need to say to you for you to hear her? And then Mujahid, how how does all of this come together as an elder? How do you provide a mentorship opportunity to Jamila? But also, how would you allow her to mentor you? So I've asked three people three different questions. I'd like to start with you, Jamila kind of sharing a little bit about defunding the police and how that relates to your relationship with your assemblyman.
4: Yeah, so um, I think a little bit about defunding the police that Um, Is unspoken when we have this conversation, it's how is it going to happen, right? Because a lot of people, when we talk about defunding the police, they think that, nope, one day we're going to wake up and there's going to be no more police and everything's going to still be wonky, right? But no, what we're talking about um, within the context of Black Lives Matter um, and liberation and prison abolition is really deinvestment. So what we're saying is we're taking some of those funds that are used for policing and reinvesting them in our communities. So what we want to see is that those same people I was saying who are experiencing houselessness get services to deal with some of their problems so that they are able to live in homes. So if that's... Um, if they're dealing with alcohol alcoholism, if they're addicted to drugs, if they have an uh, the inability to sustain a job, if they have mental illness, how do we address those things and how do we get funding back into the community um, to really work towards those things? I think that um, personally, um, I like to lobby. So I look at how people vote, right? So I think that um, Mr. McCurdy, <laughs> Mr. McCurdy does a great job at really advocating for the people in the community. Um, but I also think that what he can do specifically is push his other co-workers um, and continue to speak up for the community. Um, I know that he's a partner on the board of Nevada Partners, um, and that's in the heart of the West Side um that place speaks volumes to the community there. And so him being in that space and being on that board uplifts that community. And what I'm saying he can do is just continue to uplift those voices of his community in um whatever position that he ends up in right crossing our fingers <laughs> and so um, I think that we do see a lot of our legislators doing good things already but we need to stay on top of them and not let loose because again this issue is not just um, right now currently and it's it wasn't just in the past it's a systematic issue and so what we have to do is grab a hold of it while we can and deal with it at the root of the, its cause so if that's um, prison reform if that's talking to people who are in high school and considered at risk, right? Um, Maybe they can't make it to school because um, they have to watch their siblings. How do we make sure that as a community, we are caring and representing one another? So um, again, I think uh, Mr. McCready is doing great um, in his role. And I also think that a lot of other people can step up. And so we have to push them, um, talk to our legislators as people are saying, and um, continue to work to really defund the police. And again, um, I know that term is radical. That's something Will and I were, um, and Nikki and I were talking about, is a radical term such as defunding the police. But the thing about it is it's not that radical. As long as we're saying we're defunding them to reinvest in ourselves and reinvest in a community, there's nothing with defunding the police because all we're doing is putting that money into the people.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that hearing someone that is an organizer verbalize it in that way is extraordinarily helpful. We have such a diverse listening audience and viewing audience that I think it's important to, to say the unsaid things and to, to just make it very clear. On the subject of defunding the police, based on how Jamila has defined it, how do we make that happen? And I'll ask Mujahid for that.
6: Well, Interesting observation, and it is that um, is somewhat uh, provocative. when you speak of defunding uh, public safety, um, I, I would certainly want for Jamila. Uh, I, I want to hear more, you know, offline from her about the concept. I, I would encourage us to look at avenues of looking for alternative resources. And well, here's an idea to think about. Someone shared with me just recently. Um, we've lost almost a billion dollars to hacking during the COVID event that has gone on, COVID-19, that is, was taken actually through, through state government here. We were very ill-prepared for that. Those, this, the type of problems that they encountered. The computer system, the technology, was a, it was a complete overload. But imagine now if we could take the 800,000, uh, well, no, not more than 800,000, we're talking about millions of dollars that were lost, and we could invest that into those disenfranchised neighborhoods all the money that we've lost. So I, I certainly hope that someone who's connected to public safety and law enforcement at the state level assemblyman is looking into how did all that money get stolen out of via, through Dita, Dieter, not Dita's people, but someone hacked into their system. I certainly hope you can give us an answer to that maybe in this next legislative session. Discussions with Jamila and persons like, I have a 17, 18 year old granddaughter who, who asks me constantly, Papa, how long do we have to wait? And I think this generation is saying we're not going to wait. And I think we need to hear more of that. Our generation needs to hear more of that because we probably told the the, uh, great society generation the same thing. So it has to be a discussion. It has to be a dialogue that goes on. And I certainly invite her, young people like herself, to get in touch with myself. If you get in touch with the sheriff's office, you get in touch with me directly, someone is going to get back in touch with you. And and we want to hear. I want the advisory council members to hear from persons uh like yourself and i'm sure people like craig knight and dora legron and jose Solario and all of those individuals uh would would be involved with that and i think we need to get young people more engaged and more involved and i applaud and i'm excited about the fact that during the demonstrations i saw young white students walking with signs and these some these signs said white people your silence is killing my black brothers and sisters that's a powerful message i think it is transgenerational now we've had transgenerational trauma but in terms of having a transgenerational struggle, you all represent taking the baton and running with it. So I think that's the avenue. One, certainly getting to know one another, each other, hearing each other's story, listening to our young and young, please listen to the elders who we can share our experiences with you. Thank you, Will.
0: Excellent, I think that's important and I'm glad that you've acknowledged that and bring that up. Assemblyman, what are your thoughts?
7: Um, I believe that we need to have a discussion about evolution. I think we need to have a discussion about uh, where do we wanna go? Uh, What does a society that values every resident in America look like? What does that look like? And what we know uh, to be a fact is that the net worth uh, of a typical white family In certain parts of America, it was like $171,000, whereas in the Black family, it was like $17,150. And that's according to the Federal Reserve uh, 2016 Survey of Consumer Finances. Uh, What we know is that when folks speak about defunding the police or, uh, you know, talking about the system uh, as it is currently and talking about how it is racist, we know that the system is not working. So we have to identify how do we create policies and and create safeguards so that everyone can actually thrive in what we call American, what it was founded upon is, you know, achieving an American dream. But that dream was not so attainable for, for many people that live here. And my goal, uh, while I have breath in my body, is to uh, engage in debate around how do we get to a more compassionate place of society, uh, which is why I was so interested in coming and joining uh, within this discussion, because it is incredibly important. And Will, like you said, is, it is a multi-generational uh, a panel that we have here, but sometimes, uh, folks have different motivations. For me, I represent a district uh, that pre-COVID, the annual household income was about $23,000, whereas uh, other areas of Nevada was about $56,000. So COVID didn't just, um, you know, It didn't just it didn't just contribute to the decline or or the or 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 the death of more African Americans by you know or more or more Black people in America by uh, you know contracting the virus. It actually exposed how uh, injustice Black people have you know been uh, experienced. It it exposed the injustice that have been permeating throughout society throughout communities uh, that are lower income. So the question is, how do we put uh, policies in place to ensure that no one falls beneath a certain floor. How do we uh, talk about restorative justice justice? How do we talk about sentencing reform? Uh, how do we talk about creating ways and avenues for folks to uh, attain wealth? And, and, and how are we going to, you know, hold our federal delegation accountable to, 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 to bring in dollars back into our state to invest in uh, lower income census tracts? Because truly, if 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 we start to think about these different areas, because we know that everyone wants a a good quality of life, and everyone wants the same thing for their children, and it's not so difficult to do. What it takes is the will, the political will, to actually uh, have those conversations and actually engage in debate, even if it's uncomfortable around how do we make sure that everyone who lives within this nation's borders can succeed, whether we're talking about educational attainment, whether whether we're talking about You know, the social uh, infrastructure that's in place in in lower income and lower income census tracts and lower income areas. Or how are we talking about the access to capital that is available for uh, You know, for for younger generations that are, are that are not looking at, you know, working for somebody but are looking at, you know, going to school and creating their own businesses. Like, how can we create a more just Society and a more just system for everybody. That is what I am interested in. And again, going back to how can we Talk about the evolution of America. How can we talk about what it's going to take for all of our, not only our policymakers, because policymakers are only one part of it, but everyone has a part to play. There is not one person, you don't have to have a title to create change. You don't have to have a title to create create and engage in debate. Everyone is a leader naturally, and, uh, and and with some people, they just haven't um, you know tapped into themselves enough to identify that they are indeed a leader. So, I believe that spaces like this are incredibly important, so that we can you know create dialogue and we can have conversations about how do we get to this uh, this this metropolis, so to speak, or this you know this 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 space where everyone can uh, can thrive. And it's okay if it gets uncomfortable. And, and Will, I think you're doing a phenomenal job in, in, in setting up the questions and in, in allowing us to, uh, to really you know, give, our, give our, our perspective on how we get to a, a, a better place for our society. But police reform is only a piece of it. Economic justice is a piece of it. Social justice is a piece of it. Health justice is a piece of it. Because truly, if you don't have health, you don't have anything. If you don't have, uh, you know, because you can't buy it more time. You know, so we have to make sure that we are putting the uh, the, the health infrastructure in place for people to actually uh, live, the, you know, the best of their ability. So that's all I have to say. I can go on and on, but I'll stop right there, Will. Well, it's good, and I just
0: want to acknowledge how powerful what you have said really, really is, and the fact that you have tied in the the public health piece with the economic piece with the restorative justice piece. I mean, the, it's all interconnected, and if, I hope if we don't take anything else away from the conversations tonight, we take away that interconnectedness piece. We are all connected, and as Dr. King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and I alluded to that in my opening, I have one final question that I'd like to ask each of, each of you. And starting with Mujahid, if you had a magic wand and you could just wave it and make one change occur that would be lasting and that would impact all Nevadans, what would that change be and why?
6: That's an interesting uh, cool question, uh, Will. What would that lasting change be? I believe at this stage of our development and at this stage of our growth and our transformation, I believe that continued, not statewide and community city and countywide discussion around the issues that we're sharing here and inviting more and more people to be engaged in it. I believe that within the public safety law enforcement community, They need to be a part of that discussion. They being those who in public service and law enforcement, and they need to have that discussion not only with the community, but also with themselves. We expect the men and women of LVMPD to hold each other responsible because the the policies there say they're gonna hold each other responsible when they're providing public safety to our communities. But this type of discussion, I believe, the expansion of it across our valley and engaging people. To close with this point, Las Vegas is among urban population centers eighth, seventh or eighth in the country in diversity. We have the most diverse educational institutions, UNLV and Clark County School District ranks third or fourth in the country in diversity. If you looked at marriages here in Southern Nevada, Clark County, we have, we're probably second or third in the country in, the country too, in diverse marriages. That means people, black and whites are marrying, Asians and whites, blacks and Asians, Hispanics and whites. So people are marrying into each other's ethnic groups here. So I think there's a real need for us. And the 40-plus million people we hope to see coming back beyond this COVID-19, they're from diverse populations. So we need to understand, this police department knows, it needs to understand diversity. And it is taking the steps and the measures. We didn't have time to cover all of them, but it is doing that. I think, though, as a community, we don't know how diverse we are. And we need to know so we can all further this goal and this mission of engagement around this and understanding one of another. And I think that happens through discussion. And sometimes discussion is going to be uncomfortable. So it's going to some people are going to have to be uncomfortable, but others people have to be compassionate. And we have to learn how to be compassionate with our brothers and sisters in this discussion. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge those watching on Facebook as well. We see you. We appreciate you for tuning in to the conversation. Jamila, same question. You've got a magic wand. You can change one thing. What would it be and why?
4: First, if I had a magic wand, I'd wish myself up some more wishes because this is a loaded question. (laughs) There's not just one thing I'd want to change. Um, But to answer your question, if I had a magic wand and I can wish up only one thing is I would wish up for more accomplices. And I say this because we always have this conversation around allies, and I continuously have this conversation in a multitude of spaces. Allies are great for information spreading, um, to really uplift the movement, to continue a conversation. But in the terms of advocacy, in the terms of the work we do, I want an accomplice. I want someone who's going to stand by me to continue this work. I want someone who is going to commit themselves to the work of the community, um, to uplifting the voices of the
3: Oh, no, we lost you again, Jamila,
0: but I, I hear you on your point, being an accomplice is so important, and I love that you've made that distinction. So are, are you back with to Say something for us.
4: Yeah, I think I'm back. Okay, good. But yeah, I think that's really, that was my wish. Um, I hope that you got most of that is really wishing for someone and for people in our community to not only step up when there are protests, but to continue that movement um, throughout. Our regular engagements with each other. It's not only when we see unarmed black folk um, passing away from police violence. Do we need an accomplice. No, but we need them in the workspaces. We need them in our schools. We need them in our hospitals. um, We need them as our legislators. And so that's what I'm really hoping for. And that would be my one wish. Thank you. Wonderful.
0: Thank you. And I think that that's important. And you, you nailed it. I love that you would wish for more wishes too. That that's my kind of, my kind of thinking there and a man, in a lot of ways, you do have a magic wand. What would that one thing be for you?
7: Well, first off, uh, I I would want, if I had a magic wand, uh, I'm going to lump all these three into one, but I would want everyone to experience more love, more compassion, more empathy, because I believe if you have all of those things and you're truly and sincerely, um, you know, operating in, in a way to where we can see a better quality of life for everyone, I believe that we'll have more uh, policy passed that is, you know, more beneficial to uh, the, the the residents of Nevada that, you know, that we are charged with, uh, you know, with representing it at the highest levels of government. I think that we will have, uh, you know, uh, at, at, a mass investment uh, of infrastructure in, in lower income communities so they can experience the same quality of life as those in affluent communities I also believe that we will see a, a more just uh, legal system because if you don't have compassion and, and if you don't have uh, empathy and if you can't put yourself in my shoes, even if you're not in my shoes and walking in my shoes, then how can you truly represent me in, in, in the interest that I have? And not only as, as a black man, and, but also as a father who does not want to leave a racist uh, state or a racist nation uh, to my child. I don't want my child to inherit this. I want my child to inherit a more loving a more compassionate, a more caring, a more empathetic uh, society and at the end of the day that's all it's really about you know uh the work that we do today is a down payment on the future because if we don't change it and if we don't continue to fight the good fight even though even when it's unpopular then we will not get to a place of more equity of more equality of, of 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 more just love and light and In terms of policy, I think that we should focus more on on restorative justice and making sure that uh, we are giving second chances. Everyone say that they believe in second chances until it's time to actually give someone a second chance. And uh, maybe I'm speaking from my experience because, you know, uh, I've gone through a lot in my life coming from where I come from but I think that we just truly need more compassion. and We need to operate with more love and empathy. And if we all do that, if we all take that personal charge to, to be intentional about uh, learning more about compassion, because a lot of people say compassion or they say empathy, but they don't really understand the depth of the word. They've never looked it up. They don't know what the definition of it means. They don't can't, can't name a synonym. But if we would all do that and be intentional about our actions, I think this would be a better place. And uh, my goal is to just, uh, you know, continue to, you know, uh, stand on the side of the people. And uh, we need more leaders. Um, And again, I repeat that you don't have to have a title to be a leader. We need more leaders that are compassionate about the people. Uh, And and if we do that, we'll all uh, be in a better place. And we will uh, definitely uh, allow for our children to inherit a place that's much better than the place that we're living in now. Thank you. wonderful. Thank you.
0: And I wanted to say thank you to all of our panelists. We are so grateful for your time, for your energy, for your insight and wisdom, for your compassion. Thank you for sharing. And I've seen the comments in the chat box. I want to let you know the conversations are not stopping. This is just the final conversation in this particular series. We are bringing together different entities, different organizations, and people for recorded conversations and private conversations to ensure that there is action behind the talk. Of course, we recognize that relationships are built through this type of conversation, but out of those relationships, action items come. And they're implemented and change happens. So we do have additional conversations that will be happening this fall, including a youth-led forum. So I'm so excited about that. And make sure you tune in for those that have to leave. I understand we were scheduled till 730, but I asked if you can just give us a few extra minutes tonight for our final one you give a preacher a moment, he's going to take it. So uh, please just give us a few extra minutes. Um, We also are releasing a toolbox that will have some of the resources that have been mentioned tonight and previous sessions. It will have a an abundance really of resources, not just um, uh, books, but um, videos that you can watch, TED Talks, um, action items, what you can do as tangible practical steps to, to be anti-racist. You know, we have all of that coming for you. And I want you to know that you are the people that make this happen. All of our panelists are doing incredible work, but without you, those that are watching and and engaging in this conversation, we really are just talking. So we need you to get involved. As has already been stated, please make sure you're voting, but also make sure those that you know are registered to vote and actually use their right to vote. I invite everyone on this panel and on the call to go to CompassionateLV.org and look at the Charter for Compassion. And if so moved, sign the Charter for Compassion live the charter for compassion. We also have a golden rule license plate. That's a free way to to evangelize and spread the message right away. So you can do that just by driving around the town. The golden rule license plate is something you can do. But above all else, believe in what is possible. Don't settle for what is practical. Believe in what is possible and aim for that. And we can achieve great things together. So I want to say thank you to all of our partners again for your support. Thank you again to the panelists, and thank you to the audience.